0: Live in one of the most religiously observant countries in the world. Many working-class communities and communities of color are rooted in religious traditions. Yet for over... For 40 years, the religious right has focused much of its energy on seizing control of religious narratives and institutions. This is Heart of a Heartless World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America, the largest socialist organization in the United States. Our goal is to amplify the voices of people of faith organizing for social, racial, environmental, and economic justice. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon.
1: So, welcome to the second installment of uh, a monthly conversation series uh, hosted by Religious Socialism of the Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, tonight's conversation is on building an inclusive movement for economic justice. Um, And just to make sure that we're all beginning from uh, a similar place, Um, DSA, uh, as many of you uh, may or may not know, is um, the nation's uh, leading uh, socialist political organization. Uh, Its core belief is that uh, working people should uh, govern the economy and society uh, democratically to meet human needs, uh, as opposed to the organizing principle of making profits quarter over quarter uh, for uh, stockholders let's say. Uh, so DSA is a uh, notably a political and activist uh, organization not a political party uh, per se uh, and its organization just to give you a feel and flavor for, for DSA uh, is organized by campus and community-based chapters uh, whose members engage in a full spectrum of political action uh, including everything from legislative to um, disruptive justice work uh, fighting for non-reformist reforms that uh, empower uh, working people. Um, religious socialism, in case you may be wondering uh, a bit about what that signifies and stands for, uh, is inspired by a vibrant uh, and rich tradition of folks who are committed to uh, building a new society in a way that's inspired uh, by their faith. Uh, and we are in uh, a really unique inflection point, I think, in our society where you have um, Muslim folks, Jewish folks, Christians, Buddhists, uh, people coming from a variety of different streams uh, in order to, uh, in many ways, and I I think um, Reverend Liz will appreciate this, to call for a moral revival uh, and not just pushing uh, for policy changes, however structural they may be in a technocratic sense, but recognizing that there's a deep moral imperative uh, that for many folks of, of faith in particular is connected to that work of organizing and pushing uh, for structural shifts in our society. Uh, So religious socialism in many ways emerges from that kind of stream. Uh, It was founded in the 70s uh, by John Court and other religious socialists. Uh, And here's a a fun fact for uh, for some of you all. Uh, One of DSA's founders, uh, Michael Harrington, uh, was actually influenced by Dorothy Day and the Catholic uh, worker movement. Um, So even when we talk about uh, pushing for uh, a political economy that looks different than the one we currently inhabit, so often the symbols, the stories, the songs, uh, the narrative resources that are deployed to talk about why we might build a new society in some regards, not every regard, that comes from faith traditions. Uh, So I'm super excited and enthused to be uh, in conversation tonight with a, a dear colleague and friend, and Reverend Dr. Liz uh, Theo Harris. Uh, I don't know if y'all can see me, in my little box, but I'm giving a, a slow clap of appreciation and joy for the great work uh, that she's doing. Um, Dr. Theo Harris is the uh, executive director of the Cairo Center on Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary uh, in the city of New York. And let me hasten to add, because there's also one in Virginia. Uh, she's also the national co chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, Many of you may be familiar with um, her co-chair of the campaign, Reverend William Barber. So um, just to give you a sense of the great work that they're doing together. Uh, For those who are unaware on the Poor People's Campaign, uh, I see folks are still uh, uh, clapping the the enthusiasm is is a collective one. And I'm hoping that this is um, a a mood of interactive flowing engagement throughout. Um, just a, a quick bit of, of context before we hop into the conversation. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign work not only extends the work of uh, Dr. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, uh, which Mary Wright Edelman, uh, the National Welfare Rights Organization, and other folks helped initiate, uh, but also the Cairo Center's work uh, under the leadership of Dr. Theo Harris and, and others uh, like Willie Baptist. Um, they also help to continue that tradition. Um, So the Poor People's Campaign did not emerge uh, tabula rasa, as I'm sure Reverend Liz will be the first to to share, Uh, but they have been doing a lot of really great work um, over the years. Uh, Reverend uh, Liz and I first uh, met, um, I believe it may have been in Las Vegas, um, not too long ago, as, as panelists for uh, the Religion News Association's uh, Religion, Socialism, and Economic Justice Panel last September, when we could all freely go outside uh, before COVID uh, imposed uh, masks and social distancing and all of these other necessary uh, but often uh, dissonant uh, requirements upon our sociality. Um, just to give you a brief word about uh, myself, uh, Reverend Andrew Wilkes, a um, pastor. Um, policy director, uh, writer, proud member of Religious Socialism's uh, editorial group of Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, and during to tonight's uh, conversation. I also have the pleasure, McNeil is the uh, executive director, and has done a phenomenal job helping to uh, undergird some of the work of the New York State wing of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, And we indeed are going to spend a good amount of time talking about uh, uh, the work of of PPC. Uh, DSA, for for those who may not be aware, has formally endorsed uh, the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, And many of our members are doing uh, absolutely Yaoman's work uh, that's grounded in their faith and ethics uh, in chapters across the country uh, to help power and push that movement forward. And so tonight, uh, we want to talk to some of the faith underpinnings of that campaign as well as to explore together uh, how we might build uh, an inclusive movement for uh, economic justice uh, that notably uh, takes this uh, cue from for poor folks as leaders in their own right uh, who are doing self organizing uh, rather than presuming to, uh, to be speaking on, on their behalf. Uh, so so Ribbon, Liz, um, l- let's hop into the conversation. It, it is a joy to to have you here. Uh, I don't know if you want to say a few words before we, we dive on into
2: it. Mostly just happy to be here, happy to see some uh, familiar faces and, and a bunch of uh, folks that I'm looking forward to being in uh, Zoom dialogue with, um, you know, yourself, Andrew, and, and, then, and with others. So thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So let's, let's start here. Um, What does it look like to center economic justice in an integrated as opposed to uh, an isolated way? Uh, The Poor People's Campaign uh, strives to model, uh, it seems uh, to me, this kind of integration with this emphasis on economic justice and uh, ecological devastation and overcoming white supremacy and undoing nationalism and moving start, but personally arrived at this kind of uh, economic justice and kind of place, this integrator.
2: Yeah, I mean, so the Poor People's Campaign, you know, takes on actually five interlocking injustices. Um, and so we actually start with systemic racism. Um because of its long history and, um, and the and the strong reality of it um, in in our lives today, um, and by systemic racism, we we you know look at everything from mistreatment of indigenous people to unjust immigration systems um, to the widespread uh, reality of, of racist voter suppression. Um, Obviously, issues like mass incarceration, um, the resegregation of our schools, you know, so systemic issues. I mean, definitely there's the, um, you know, personal beliefs that people hold as well. Um, uh, But that but but also just the way that racism is actually structured into the policies of our nation, into, you know, the economic system of our our nation um, and and the world. Um, And and then we move from there to to you know, issues of economic injustice and systemic poverty. Um, and we name poverty specifically because um, because in this country, there's about half of the population that is uh, poor or one, you know, not very expensive emergency away from poverty, from deep poverty. Um, and yet somehow over the last 50 years, the word poor has become basically a four-letter word. Um, and then we connect it to ecological devastation. Um, you know, if if you look at the communities that are first and worst hit by climate crisis, by um, environmental injustice, um, by you know uh, um, extreme weather. Um, it's it's poor and marginalized communities, and and then we connect it to the issues of militarism, the militarization of our communities, this war economy, where we live in a nation that spends fifty three cents of every discretionary dollar on the military and less than fifteen cents on education and healthcare and anti poverty programs combined. Um, and and then we we do see that all of that is held together by this false narrative, this false moral narrative, a narrative that blames poor people, blames people of color, blames immigrants um, for all of society's problems, um, uh, tries to pit us all against each other, you know, um, uh, and, and feeds us this lie that this is as good as it gets, you know, we um, mm-hmm. can't really address these problems, we actually have scarcity when we actually all know here I'm sure that we're living in a world of beautiful abundance, right? And so, I mean, I I think the the poor people's campaign came to these five interlocking injustices because poor people are facing all of those injustices uh, simultaneously, always, um, and they might manifest in different ways. But if you talk about someone who's, you know, living in Lowndes County, Alabama, with raw sewage in their yard. With the lack of transportation, with suppressed voting rights, and and the lack of Medicaid expansion, you can't pull out racism from poverty, from ecological devastation, from um, the war economy, nor from this distorted narrative. Um, if you talk about, you know, what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border in El Paso, um, and now the kind of militarization of the border coming. To the interior, in terms of the policing of protests, again, you can't separate these issues. You know, uh, you can't say that there isn't racism. You know, in the front and center there, and and you can't say that the the you know priorities of funding a a, a border wall or or police or military are disconnected from the fact that you know uh, we almost have no polar ice caps left, right? And so and so um, and then in my own life. Uh, it's It's also a kind of a you know coming together of, of all of these issues um, uh, and so and so I think it's it's both the campaign as we were traveling around as we were talking to people and, and hearing the, the key issues that you know kind of come yeah. to form this interlocking you know web of injustice um, uh, you know we, we surely took from uh, learned deeply from uh, the tripartite evils that Dr. King was um, addressing in the last years of his life, when he came out against the Vietnam War and called it an enemy of the poor, and and said that you know basically you can't take on run the
1: history, run the history.
2: <laughs> one of these issues, right? And so, so, but, but again, you know, each of us has has our own stories about how those play out, um, and you know, I I could go on and on. No, that, that's a, a
1: powerful point to. Um, to lift up. And I appreciate you naming that the emphasis on the five interlocking injustices, uh, begin with, with, uh, and and in many respects, um, moving to a focus on uh, talking about systemic racism, talking about, uh, anti-blackness, talking about poverty in particular are often points of impasse when it comes to building, a durable, heterogeneous coalition, not only for economic justice, uh, but economic justice in a way that moves through those other four interlocking justices that you mentioned so that it's fully. Oral. Uh, so, I want to um, kind of stay there a bit uh, and, and talk a bit more about what it looks like to have a robustly inclusive uh, coalition for. Um, economic justice uh, that, again, is constantly weaving these other injustices together. Uh, The New York Times recently published an article um, dealing in substantial measures with racial justice that, uh, in part, uh, deals with uh, DSA's spectrum of viewpoints on how to connect uh, anti-racism and economic justice, uh, which is an issue that um, also rose to some extent uh, within DSA and other segments and sectors of our political life within the Democratic Party primary. Um, And maybe as a a bit of a a juxtaposition, perhaps, of sorts, um, the the, the Poor People's Campaign, uh, as as I understand it, uh, and in my experiences uh, in supporting the work, uh, deliberately centers the leadership of poor people while also um, prioritizing uh, multiracial organizing. And so given some of these overlapping realities. I'm wondering what sorts of um, lessons you all have had to kind of learn in your own work and and what perhaps as an outgrowth of the Poor People's Campaign work might you share with folks in in DSA that are wondering how you hold together uh, this kind of focus on uh, confronting systemic racism as a necessary first in order to get to this kind of information. On, on economic justice, could, could you speak to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I, I think I think connected to how the poor people's campaign came to these five interlocking injustices, and and how and why we start with systemic racism, and and how and why um, the leadership of those most impacted, affected by injustice, needs to be um, you know in the forefront. Um, you know, has has everything to do with. With an analysis of our society today, an analysis of how history um, has changed um, and how, how how movements have developed, and so I think um, you know, so for us to analyze what's going on in our world today, um, you know, uh, we we actually engage in in some pretty uh, deep analytical study and data. Um, and, and found for instance, um, that the same states the 26 states that have enacted racist voter suppression laws over the past you know 10 years um, since 2010 um, are the states that have the highest levels of poverty have the least environmental protections, have the most people in the poverty draft um, where the resources also of the communities are going into the military and not into education and, and all of these things. And so you see, you see how all of that is, um, is connected. And, and Reverend Barber has a saying, which is that if, if those that we're up against are, are cynical and mean enough, to kind of come together to oppress us all, then are we gonna be hopeful and smart enough to to, to do the same? Um, and so I think, uh, you know, so that, that's, that's a starting point for our work, right? It's, it's actually making an assessment of, of what's happening in society, how people are being pitted against, who's being affected, you know, disaggregating the numbers, right? Um, so it's really important, for instance, that we use the supplemental poverty measure. We think that the poverty line is inadequate for actually understanding... The depth of, of poverty and economic injustice and precarity in our society today. Um, so, we use the, the supplemental poverty measure from the US Census that says that then, you know, pre pandemic, uh, there were 140 million people who were poor or low income. Um, so, um, we use that. And then, if you disaggregate that, I mean, that's, uh, you know, 26 million African black, black folk. That's uh, 66 million, 67, 66, 67 million uh, poor white folk. Um, you know, it's, it. you know, and we can kind of go from there, right? I mean, just the, the, that we can see the disproportionate impact of poverty on communities of color, and then we can see in raw numbers how how there are more poor white people in this society. And and you have to sit in that reality, right? You have to understand um, the disproportionate impact of poverty of policing, of 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 health inequalities, of um, of you know uh, attacks on education, and you have to see that if if we're serious about actually building a movement from the ground up, that you have to have what we call fusion. Like you have to be able to unite and organize people across geographical lines, across racial lines, across religious lines, across issue area into a powerful movement, but a movement that is led by those that are impacted by those injustices. Um, you know, so following the words of someone like Frederick Douglass, those who would be free must strike the first blow. Right, those in pain know when their pain is relieved, and and that's an important, very important strategic. Um, you know, uh analysis and, and I and and principle of the work and it's just effective, right? Um it's just that yeah. that that otherwise you get, you know, folks going into farm worker communities diagnosing what the problem is. Otherwise you have, you know, uh like what's happening in Kentucky right now is is folks have been organizing as they say it, from the hood to the holler, right? And and really pulling these these not um what you know they're not Uh, likely or they're, um, it's not, it's not what you normally think is happening, but like these uh, beautiful kind of fusion movements of, of, of white folks from the mountains and black folks from the cities and Latino folks from the suburbs and everybody kind of coming together. And, and that's, you know, deeply important if we're going to undo any of these issues, you know, so Dr. King talks about the kind of Achilles heel, like the weak point of a Mm -hmm. system that, that brings militarism and poverty and, and racism together is is uniting and organizing the poor of all races of all geographies um, into, impacted by so many issues
1: you, you know as, as you, you, you share that that really um, I think speaks to the need to have uh, courageous uh, convergent organizing across lines of division you know we think about how clear and present a danger systemic racism is to economic justice. Uh, You know, certainly uh, Dr. King and folks like Frederick Douglass comes to mind. And I also think of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel who uh, says in a beautiful collection of essays on moral grandeur and spiritual audacity that that racism uh, is Satanism. I I think he says in Chicago in the mid 60s. And so just that stronger condemnation of, of racism um, not only uh, from a social and ethical stance, but from a kind of place of, of piety and, and transcendence to kind of have that um, sort of deep reaction against racism, married to the kind of deep research and empirical case that that you mentioned uh, as well, in order to um, to tackle um, the economic. Uh, stratifications, and in many respects, domination that that, that poor folks and all low-wealth folks experience in our society. It takes uh, recognizing how surgical, in the words of one judge, voter suppression uh, has been in, in, in the Carolinas. It takes recognizing um, how formidable um, this Achilles heel, as, as you mentioned, has, has, has been. I want to talk a bit now about... Um, this dimension of, uh, of having a kind of moral uh, revival and just the kind of role of, um, of ethics in the work of the Poor People's Campaign. Um, there's been this powerful insistence, um, Reverend Liz, that, that you've often uh, made uh, that um, the, the work of the campaign impacts politics, but it's not beholden to any particular uh, political party. Um, and, and I think that kind of uh, moral disruption and innovation uh, is a powerful um, sort of posture to have, particularly in a moment where you know uh, August is convention season, right, uh, this week and, and next week and so forth, to be able to have a kind of uh, cognizant of it um, but not beholden to it sort of stance. Um, just feels particularly important. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about why uh, and how this kind of morally grounded stance, what's the significance of that for economic justice? If I can just put on uh, the hat of someone who may say, uh, if I can play the cynic role, for instance, someone may say, it's nice to have a moral and ethical case for economic justice, but maybe that's just poetry that's incidental to the actual work of building a coalition and building an organization that can um, make people say yes when they really want to say no to, to pick language that, that Dr. King was fond of using. Um, how, how does the moral and ethical uh, power building play a role in pushing for economic justice?
2: Well, I think if we look at you know social movements of the past, um, there's always been a kind of battle over morality, a battle of theology, a battle sometimes for the Bible that takes place, right? You know, so it's not an accident, for instance, that that during the abolitionist movement and and the time of U.S. chattel slavery, you know, you had like a slaveholder religion, you know, that created a slave Bible um, that. Took out the Exodus, took out the prophets, took out any mention of freedom, you know, to the slaves or good news to the poor, right? Um, but that you also had at the same time, you know, Harriet Moses Tubman, and that wasn't just a cute nickname, you know. You had, you know, Frederick Douglass, who who wrestled with religion, but who who definitely took moral stances, theological stances, on the evil. Of of U.S. chattel slavery, right? And and if we look through the ages, you know that kind of battling out of what is what are really moral values, what what you know what is right and wrong, um, you know, always has to happen. Because and, and then if you if you fast forward to today, living in a time of a pandemic, um, where over the past five months, forty uh, percent of of Uh, of families that were making $40,000 or less have lost a job. Um, 40 million people are on the verge of eviction. And that's just from places that they rent. That doesn't include foreclosures. Um, Upwards of 55 million people have applied for unemployment. And at the same time, billionaires have made $755 billion. Um, The stock market um, is as strong as it ever has been. and yet the gdp in the last quarter dropped by a third the largest um, drop in history right and so so also what is in there is morality is 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 values you know budgets are moral documents you know founding principles of a country are moral are are they talk about what kind of place we want to be and and what matters right and so just like for the past 50 years the word poor has become a four letter word somehow moral values have been hijacked to be about um who you sleep with prayer in schools the idea that jesus was a card-carrying member of the nra right and and a very small um you know uh quite honest as a biblical scholar really warped um a set of interpretations around what um what really the Bible says about these kinds of issues? When the real moral issues of our day of living wages, of healthcare, universal healthcare, not you know pay as you go healthcare, um, you know, education towards the human rights of everybody, you know, uh, having a uh, safety net that's strong so that you you can lift from the bottom and everyone can rise, right? Um, that these are actually what our faith traditions, what our constitution speaks about when it's talking about. You know what kind of society this could and should and needs to be right and so so i think why it's so important and why someone like dr king talks about a moral revolution of values is because you know as he says you know when when prophets are are chosen over people when you know uh we're militarizing the whole world and you're basically pitting poor people from across the world and poor people in this country to all go fight out a rich man's war. Like then, then what you what you have is a moral crisis, um, and it's an economic crisis, it's a political crisis, it's you know, it's a social crisis. It's it's all of these things, um, mm-hmm. but it also is a moral crisis, and and therefore you have to call out the immorality of the system at the same time as you say can be a different way. Um, and I think, um, and again, if we look throughout history, the, the you, you have to engage in that battle. And it's and it's not just a battle of ideas, though it is a battle of ideas, but it's it's also the way it plays out you know, in movements on the ground.
1: I, I think that's a, a, a powerful point that I think we, we see uh, in, in so many ways in the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement. Uh, in the labor movement, in the suffragette movement, this this battle for ideas, in many ways, is also um, an embodied struggle over how we narrate uh, the necessity for, for social change. And so when I think of a moment like uh, the one we're in now, uh, I think an excellent contribution that many of our, our, our Buddhists uh, siblings are making are talking about holding together love and, and rage. For instance, uh, it, it's possible to have a, a deep emphasis on compassion, on empathy. That's not just uh, sedentary discontent, but you know, gets you out into the streets, organizing. Maybe to join a DSA chapter. Maybe to be a part of a, a state. Uh, specific coalition of the Poor People's Campaign, but it's holding together love as a creative catalyst for collective action rather than um, viewing love as something sentimental that has you wish for a better future but not work for it, and rage is something that has you, uh, you know, perhaps uh, understandably, uh, but not necessarily efficaciously, right, pour out uh, frustration and engage in endless analysis and critique that doesn't necessarily coalesce people together and so I think a part of the contemplative contribution that, that I'd say, you know, stretches from folks like Thich to uh, Angel uh, Coyero-Williams, uh, I think of Valerie Kaur as another person who uh, uh, from a, a different tradition is also bringing uh, just really powerful contributions to, to bear on how uh, morality is essential, um, wherever its point of origin for, for social movements and this battle over I- ideas. Um, m- maybe if we can um, kind of uh, pivot th- this way, um, because as we talk about the battle of ideas, in many ways, a-, a part of the terrain of struggle is is how do we tell the story? How do we craft uh, a public narrative that actually? Uh, supports, uh, say, economic justice, for instance. The, the standard storyline that, that many of us uh, have, have heard uh, and perhaps could repeat back, right, whether or not you agree with it, is that the way economies work is to give maximum latitude to the investor class, to Chambers of commerce in your local cities to economic development authorities, right? Is, is this stuff for me, folks? You need uh, the most liberal tax regulation possible because you want capital to invest in your region, invest in your communities, and somehow their investments in markets will lead to. to rising prosperity for all we can benefit. Let's grow the pie. Let's, you know, kind of stop talking about dividing the pie. That, that stories um, apart from the many holes and torturous logic that it holds, it's a simple story. It's easy to remember. And it kind of sets, um, the kind of default setting. And so I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if we can transition to, uh, not simply, um, uh, doing the important work of, of kind of poking an anti-capitalist hole in that standard storyline. But when we talk about moving with all of these five interlocking injustices towards uh, a new economy, I, I see folks uh, uh, hopping in the chat, give us your money and we'll take care of you. A- absolutely, Don. That, that's, that's how the storyline it, It's so familiar to us. Uh, if I may push the point a bit further, um, we hear it. Uh, at both party conventions. I, th- I think it's important to be honest that uh, that's not just something that one party tells, but we hear it at both party conventions. So, so, how do we begin to tell a new story in your choice phrase, uh, Reverend Liz, of beautiful abundance uh, that retains some of the um, realities that there is some class conflict that, that we, we have to just kind of deal with? Um, but there is a beautiful abundance rather than a scarcity. Um, that is, uh, that can power our story. I'd love to, to hear you talk a, a, a bit about that.
2: Yeah, well, there's, there's a lot to, there's a lot to say. Um, I mean, so one place I, I would start is that this kind of idea um, that like trickle down or like, or the way that, like the, the things are structured, is for the best um, for everyone. Um, I mean, I think we have to just mean that that's a lie it doesn't work, it oh. hasn't worked, um, All the you know, and, and that, that like, it's connected to, um, you know, people protecting, um, and, and, like, again, not individuals, but people acting in their own interests to protect a system, where some, you know, benefit off of, of the, the, poverty and, and desperation of, of the vast majority, right? And, you know, I think about Dr. King's, um, you know, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It's it's um, restructuring, right? Restructuring an edifice that produces beggars. And I, and I would add to that, it, it's an edifice that produces beggars, but also produces billionaires. And we cannot separate the fact that, uh, some people didn't happen to become billionaires and some people didn't happen to become beggars, you know, as, as many of uh, the leaders in the Poor People's Campaign are very clear. Like, this wasn't an accident. This didn't just happen. Um, this is on purpose, right? You know, that the fact that there's more uh, abandoned luxury housing units in this country than there are homeless people isn't just, like, unfortunate, Um, It is immoral and we should, we should, we should therefore like, you know, show that to the world, right? Like what kind of society can build a prefab house in 45 minutes and yet has, you know, already 11 million homeless people in this country and 40 more million, maybe 60 more million um, in the next couple of months, right? You know, so you have to show the fact that that, um, you know that that doesn't work, but also you have you have to name these lies as they are um, and uh, and and really engage in um, you know a, a narrative battle um, and then also a, a, a you know deep organizing that happens you know on the ground to to back that up think that this so that I think yes there is this these common stories i mean whether it's bootstrap stories or whether it's you know a rising tide lifts all boats and 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 all of those things just they're, they're not true in our society and and we we need to show that um, and in fact what we have found to be true um Uh, is that when you lift from the bottom everybody rises when you organize society around the needs of the poorest and the most marginalized everybody benefits when you pay people a a living wage instead of a minimum wage or you move that minimum wage up to a living wage that brings hundreds of millions of dollars into the economy you know that that poverty and inequality are actually costing i mean they're costing us morally right because what kind of society you know uh Makes it more possible for kids to go to, to prison than to graduate from high school. So, I mean, there's a moral cost, but it's also, you know, what kind of society is it that 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 you know is is happy to to cage up huge amounts of its population basically to, to protect the profits of, yeah. of a very few. And and if we've learned anything from the fact that the stock market is doing great at a time when when perhaps. Uh, you know, it's pretty unprecedented. We've never had this kind of job loss. We've never had this kind of drop in the economy, in the economy, right? The GDP. Um, again, we, I mean, we should actually be changing all of these terms too, right? Um, uh, you can see how the stock market has nothing to do with people's lives, right? And and in fact, you know, if we organize it around people's needs, um, you know, it would be really It'd be really different. And so I think there's this conversation about this kind of lie of scarcity and naming it as a lie. There's there's for sure having to connect beggars and billionaires. There's also just this idea that, you know, uh, there is no rising tide that lifts all boats. There are some yachts that are then sinking the rest of us. You know, I mean, just like, I mean, there's lots of other narratives and ways for us to describe what's happening, and we have to, right? like what? What we and because 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 otherwise, um, if we don't kind of shift these narratives and then build power amongst people as we do it, um, we people can't imagine um, that something else is possible. I mean, we can't imagine that. I mean, uh, for the number of years I've gone around talking about ending poverty, is possible. People think I'm crazy. And it's just like, no. I mean, you know, I was talking to some uh, economists the other day and they're like, well, I, economists know that you can end poverty. Like, right. you know, like we got we we have the solutions. Um some some economists. We all we all know that. But you know, but 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 yeah, like <laughs> there's many economists in our propaganda as killing a lot of people, but
1: yeah, yeah. that's that's an important point to them Just kind to, to to hop in on that specific point um uh two things lift up. one uh, i think telling a new story is important and and sometimes making sure that we are uh to your point about um debates within comms. there are comms that, that are committed to telling a new story uh so that we can kind of dislodge um Uh, gross domestic product and gross national product as indicators of what a healthy society uh, is supposed to be striving towards and instead to consider things like human development indexes and to think of, uh, I think of Amartya Sen's work that talks about uh, freedom and human potential as alternate ways to organize the economy. Um, I I think of, and I'm spending a bit of time going through this, but I think it's important to, to recognize that we can't resource a revolution for a more revolution for economic justice through msnbc we, we just got to be be plain about that um stephanie kelton's work where she talks about moving past the idea that federal deficits uh should function as a ceiling uh on the work of investing in social wages and public goods for uh, working people, for poor people, for lower people. She talks instead of uh, deficit being the concern, uh, the animating concern instead should be, uh, are we leveraging the full capacity of our people and are we moving towards uh, full employment as um, the metric that we should be striving towards and moving towards. Does everybody have an opportunity, in other words, uh, to employ the fullness of their gifts, their talents, their training, their passions uh, in jobs that are legally uh, uh, protected, right where you can join a union, where you can negotiate over things like benefits so on and so forth. Uh, but then I also think uh, lastly on economists who are committed to telling a new story that can help us craft this public narrative uh, of someone like uh, Derek Hamilton and Sandy Darity, uh, who are pioneering, um, ratification economics, which essentially says that, uh, in many ways, it, it ties the conversation together. That they, Their main claim, if I can engage in what is hopefully um, responsible oversimplification, their main claim is that systemic racism, I'm paraphrasing a bit, ecological devastation, the war economy, uh, that these are not incidental things to an economy's health, but that they are in fact central things that we have to take account of and we have to look at um the trajectories of the specific communities and demographics in order to have a full picture of how folks who are stratified and in some respects uh in a caste position in our economy can move forward and so we we'll just really commend uh, the work of Derek hamilton and sandy dirty to folks uh, hamilton in particular uh wrote a good article in dissent on uh, a new bill of economic rights that folks might be interested uh, in, in checking out. Um, but th- there's a, a, a second piece, I've seen it happen all throughout New York State and I'm sure it's happening in other places of doing um, kind of truth and, and justice sort of commissions, if you will, where, where poor people themselves are self-organizing and lifting up the own stories, making their own policy and, and articulating the future that it is they want to see. Um, so wondering if you can talk, Reverend uh, a bit about what some of that work has looked like across the country and how folks um, at DSA um, can help to uh, push that work for.
2: Yeah, no, great. Thanks so much for that. And, and in so many of the economists you were just talking about, you know, were able to, you know, a role in putting together some of the different um, policy pieces and and budgets and stuff that the Poor People's Campaign has has, has put together. And I really would love to encourage folks here, if if you aren't already familiar, um, to check out on the poorpeoplescampaign.org website The Souls of Poor Folk audit, um, where we kind of talk about 50 years since Dr. King launched the Poor People's Campaign of 67, 68. You know, where where are we on militarism? Where are we on racism? Where are we on ecological devastation? Where are we on on poverty? Um, And then we also, from there, um, put together you know an agenda and then a a moral budget. And I really encourage folks to to read that um, Poor People's Moral Budget. We actually presented it to the House of Representatives Budget Committee last year. Um, and, uh, um, you know, we, were, we said we found the money. Um, we have a plan. You know, if we cut the military budget in half, we have a fair taxation system where uh, we go back to having um, the wealthiest who can afford the most to pay just their fair share. Um, uh, and if we invest, um, if we invest in programs like childcare and in um, living wages and in universal single-payer health care and in, in many of the demands of the campaign, um, that not only could we actually, uh, you know, come to you know, come you know, al- ameliorate some of these problems, we could actually fundamentally um, transform the whole the whole nation um, and and really make poverty and economic insecurity and precarity um, a thing that doesn't impact people in the way that it does now. And so um, and, and so we've done a bunch of that work, right, of, of kind of empirical and anecdotal research at the same time as we've been doing some deep power building amongst um, impacted communities across the country. And so uh, we have what we call coordinating committees in 46. It might actually be more than that now. Uh, we just had some states out west, Montana and Nebraska and Oklahoma all come on um, after we, Held the mass poor people's assembly and world march on Washington. Um, they've been organizing for a bit out there, and and so I think it's actually more than forty six, but I, but um, not quite all fifty states, but but close to all fifty states of this country have coordinating committees that are led by impacted folks, moral leaders, activists um, across a, a whole diversity of lines. Um, Engaging in in grassroots organizing, um, state based. Um, we have a theory in this Poor People's Campaign that a national movement isn't about having a PO box in D.C. Um, it's not even about doing only actions and activities in in D.C. or in New York, but it's about having na- nationalizing state based movements um, and state based wow. movements not being just um, not just like in one city or one metropolitan area, um, but actually, um, uh, like, across, you know, suburban, exurban, rural, small town, urban areas, um, uh, and, and really shifting state politics. So many of the regressive um, policies that are happening, um, so much statement. of the is happening at the state level. Exactly. And so, so in in almost every state, there are um, folks out there every morning waking up, thinking about how they're building a fusion movement, um, uh, a movement of people, um, and building this campaign, um, pulling together folks you know out of many different organizations, many different movements into a powerful kind of force um, to be reckoned with. And so uh, that that is everything from town halls and truth commissions and bus tours and. Um, Uh, to demand deliveries, um, and then now, you know, as folks um, are having to figure out how to do that in a safe way, um, you know, folks are still doing eviction resistance, rent strikes, um, you know, uh, walkouts um, virtually sometimes of of, uh, their places of employment, um, you know, uh, protests in front of closed-down healthcare centers. Um, and doing some of it in person, a lot of it in cars, and actually a whole lot of it online because um, there's just a lot of, of work. And so, you know, would love for people here, if, if you're not already involved, I mean, again, I see a bunch of faces that are, but um, but to, to reach out. Um, and the way that you can con- contact, you know, the Poor People's Campaign in general is you can text the, the number uh, or the word MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975 or you can go to poor when you join you start getting newsletters but it also means that in your state in your geographic area people in are, are alerted to the fact that you know 200 more people have joined you know um in oklahoma this week or whatever and and, and you can connect up that way
1: that's beautiful uh and and cannot um underscore enough the importance of saying, uh, join, 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 organize, organize, organize. Uh, A good friend uh, and solid organizer in his own right, Pastor Mike McBride, often talks about how uh, an organized lie will defeat disorganized truth every time. Uh, So when the call to actions come, they're not merely meant to be uh, a rhetorical tilt towards, you know, resplendent thought. It's meant to Translate our ideals into uh, material forms of power that can help us uh, drag the future we so deeply desire and pray for, in whatever language and vocabulary we may use, into our, our present. And so, uh, make sure you, you text uh, M O R A L uh, to what, what was the number again? Nine zero
2: nine seven five. Nine zero nine seven five.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll do a, a call. I'll put a little thing. I'll oh, appreciate you. God bless you for. Uh, making sure folks join DSA in the chat. I I also see people uh, responding in the chat. I wanna encourage folks uh, to continue to do so. Um, We're gonna make a formal turn towards uh, a more um, intentionally interactive component in just a few moments. Uh, Just wanna lift up some of what folks have have named so far. Um, Among them, the importance of an alternate moral narrative um, Beginning with the recovery of uh, reprocity and all the ways that we organize, that um, certainly is a is a crucial component. Uh, I see a book recommendation for for Robert Jones White Too Long, which is is certainly uh, an excellent book that deals uh, specifically with um, the ways that um, white uh, Christian identity um has been uh corrosive uh and and if we could extrapolate i haven't yet had a chance to make it all the way through the book uh but but there are ways that religion uh in general i think can be both liberatory emancipatory as well as um it can kind of reify and give sacred uh reinforcement to uh more toxic nativist xenophobic attitudes so i think self-examination and contemplative practice and Uh, really making sure that we're doing the work of being in circles where folks can hold us accountable and call us towards something bigger and more noble uh, is is critical, uh, lest our religion um, disfigure rather than inspire work towards love and and justice. Um, There's also a question here on the table, uh, a few of them that I want to lift up. One is, how do we? I'm going to say a few of them uh, and see how many we can can, can get to. I'll, I'll promise at least two. Uh, how do we strategically reform uh, Christian institutions? Um, I hope someone will see it as a as a faithful amendment to say faith faith communities, uh, right, which includes Christian institutions, but perhaps others uh, as well as an essential means for breaking the logjam. And then there's another. Um, And I think important question, Um, what, as a member of the middle class, uh, what role can I play to help facilitate the goals of these uh, groups and movements? Um, I'll say a bit about the first one and then we'd love to to bring you in, Reverend Liz. I I think I just want to really restate some of the great um, action steps that were lifted up, because I think so often, and again, uh, uh, King's uh, words just keep coming up, um, in, in part because his terms and phrases are so useful. He, he talks about so often what um, stops uh, faith communities from being effective um, is that there's a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds, meaning there's more talk about what we'd like to see done than there is putting in the work to actually um, do that work. and the uh examples of town halls, truth commissions, bus tours, demand deliveries, um I've seen dial-ins for justice which I've I've helped to organize at some congregations which is basically a phone banking approach that uh is targeted to particular folks uh, in power. There's a variety of ways that uh action can be taken to kind of break that logjam. I think the most essential thing I underscore and and really want to bring you in here, Reverend Liz, is to commit to trying, failing, failing better, and having continuous improvements in collective experiments for justice. Nobody has this all figured out, but you got to move and refine as you move towards justice. What would you say on on that point, Reverend Liz?
2: Yeah, I mean, so I'm thinking a little bit about both questions, and um, again, Dr. King quote, um, comes to my mind. Uh, it's one that I actually read or, or say to myself every morning. Um, uh, in the, it's in the Trumpet of Conscience. Um, it was during the Massey Lecture Series that he gave in November and December of 67, of um, titled Nonviolence and Social Change. Um, but he says, the poor and dispossessed of this nation, um, both white and Negro, live in a cruelly unjust society. They must organize a revolution, not against. Uh, I, I'm going to paraphrase, it, but against the structures which are are at hand, which have been called for and which are at hand to lift the load of poverty. Um, and then he says, uh, there are millions of poor people in this country who have little or even nothing to lose if they can be helped. To take action together, they will do so with a freedom and a power that will be a new and unsettling force in our complacent national life. And 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 so, to me, the question of of what, like, how are we going to win? How are we going to build power? How are we going to shift this narrative? Uh, uh, I think that that he has quite an answer to that. If if poor people can be helped to take action together. So then I think the question is, faith institutions, what are you doing to help poor people take action together? People from all walks of life, what are you doing to help poor people to take action together? Because the idea that then this new and unsettling force will in our complacent national life, right? You know, mm-hmm. to just break through, to unsettle things, to, to bring about something, you know, I mean so i'm the director of the kairos center kairos is a greek word it's a, it's about the breaking down of the old and the birth of something new right it's it's a it's a different kind of time it's a movement time right and i think that we are living in a time like that and and we all have a role uh, there there in no way means that if, if we're trying to build a movement that only people who are directly impacted have a role to play, that's that's not true. That's isolation, that's setting people up, that's leaving people to fight battles that all of us should be fighting, right? But but also seeing the the important strategic position of helping people who have little or nothing to lose, to take action together, whether that action is flooding McConnell's phone lines on Mondays while we do Poor People's Campaign World Mondays, whether that action is, you know, uh, going and blocking places from being able to evict folks, whether that action is, you know, talking to folks in your faith community about, um, about these issues doing a textual study, you know, doing some kind of a political education. Um, I mean, those are all things, but but what has to happen is is like are they uh, are they are they about really building the unity and the organization, um, not an organization, but the organizing of of those who have little or nothing to lose, or in the words of a fight for 15 leader that that has played a really big role. You know, We our backs are against the wall and all we can do is push, right? And so I think the question is how do ourselves, how do our communities, how do our faith communities align ourselves with organizations and people who have little or nothing to lose, whose backs are against the wall and all they can do is push because that will be a key kind of breaking point in terms of showing the immorality of the system and showing also what the solutions to that um, immoral system is and and helping us to get there. And so, you know, I just I think um, uh, none of us in this moment, um, when people are dying, you know, 700 a day from poverty, and that was before um, this Latest pandemic, when you know we have more food than it takes to feed every person, not just in this country but across the world, and yet you know we, we the number of people um, going hungry and being as, as food insecure has has really never been higher. Um, we all have a role, like we all, like we we don't get to set this one out. Um, I know that no one here is, um, and and. And and there's lots of roles. People need to come with with what it is that you bring, right? You know. So yeah. if 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 what you know how to do is you know get someone's electricity back on, come come with that. If what you know how to do is write an analysis that explains you know how you know deficits are a lie, um, and you know then bring that. And if, if what you know how to do is how to you know organize people. Um, to, to do carpentry work then do that. Like we need it all. Um, and, and, uh, cause it's a big movement that has yeah. a lot of people that need to play a role in it. Um, and we don't need people to st- stand on the sidelines when other people are leading. We need to have folks, you know, in there, um, rolling our sleeves up doing it.
1: Your wonderful refrain about we need we, it all reminds me of, of of Mark's famous dictum, and I, I won't go into to all of it, but, but the notion that uh, from, from each according to ability and, and to each according uh, to need, I think, speaks to the kind of uh, transformative, mutual aid society uh, that uh, faith communities and folks who are animated by their uh, ethical conscience um, can do to help us move towards a more beautiful, more beloved community where this abundance that we we talked about earlier uh, can be shared rather than uh, than hoarded. And someone mentioned that uh, Mark's got that uh, from from St. Luke and we we surely might appeal to a certain uh, communal tradition of sharing from Acts and and other places. Since we're on the topic, uh, Rosa Luxemburg uh, was was quite fond of uh, appealing to Acts uh, chapter four as well. So there's all kinds of uh, interlocking links between um, folks who do uh, socialist, uh, Marxist, uh, communist work in, in some cases, uh, and drawing on the rich uh, matrix of songs and stories and, and symbols and, and traditions of of our respective uh, faiths. Um, so I want to um, do one parting uh, question because you, you have written uh, an excellent book that I wanna make sure you can at least say a brief word about uh, Reverend, Reverend Liv. Uh, and then we're gonna transition just to, to really everyone into uh, a Q&A moment. Um, I think one of the obstacles that we, um, and just to, to make that point about a transformative mutual aid society clear, I think folks who do social work, I see Bridget rose that question, uh, folks who are electricians as Reverend has mentioned and have other skills and trains that we can bring to play. I think the question is how do we move beyond um, the important but um, insufficient work of, of goodwill volunteerism and kind of federate into a group, whether that's a part of a union local, whether that's a part of a faith community uh, that can help um, systemically match um, skills and talents to needs, but uh, direct service, however coordinated, alone will do it. How can we do that work to meet needs in the immediate uh, near-term time horizon? while pointing to um, the supply and demand gaps between uh, folks who might need those services, but can't access them because they're not produced at scale and then push the state and push other institutions uh, to do their part, not as a matter of politeness, but uh, in Reverend Liz's choice phrase, as a matter of uh, demand deliveries to help us move towards the society that we want. Um, So so pivoting a bit. And seeking to to overcome uh, resignation and cynicism, which I think is also um, a very real opponent and obstacle that we sometimes face. um, And and pushing against um, capitalism, pushing against uh, structures of inequality. Uh, One often hears the rejoinder in Christian language, but there's. Also, uh, I think analogous uh pushbacks from other um faith traditions as well well uh didn't Jesus say the poor that you always have with you you know D- didn't uh, Jesus say that you know you, there will always be a measure of uh destitution and lack that will permeate society, so all of this utopian pushing. Is beside the point. Uh, And for those who are not aware, uh, Reverend Liz has not only written uh, essays about this; she has written uh, an entire book about this and studied the matter quite closely. So I'm wondering if you might speak to that book um, and how its themes uh, relate to uh, understanding and mobilizing faith for economic justice. This will be our our last question before we, we transition.
2: So first, I love the fact that the question I'm supposed to be brief on is, is something that I have, like, you know, written, you know, many, many, many articles and, and, and you know, a dissertation and a book and a bunch of stuff on. So I don't really have a short answer for this, but I, I obviously do. Have mercy on me, have mercy No, no, it's so good. But so, uh, you know, for the past 25 years, I've been engaged in very grassroots anti-poverty work um, amongst homeless folks, amongst welfare recipients, amongst, you know, um those that have been excluded or abandoned in the midst of this kind of great abundance. And um, not a week really goes by without somebody quoting that passage, the poorly with you always, um, to justify an action in the face of poverty, to say if God wanted to end it, he would do so already, to say that like, you know, we'll have pie in the sky when we die, you know, like the only time we're ever going to reach a place where um, you know, there's there's you no know, poverty is is in some kind of other world, utopia, heaven type of situation. Um, and that basically, um, uh, although unfortunate, you know, poverty is inevitable. Um, and this isn't just extremists that say things like this. It's not just, you know, devout Christians. It's, sometimes it's not people they even know where it fits in the Bible. They just know Jesus said it, right? Um, and then sometimes it is Deeply, deeply faithful people who are really wrestling with the fact that their pastor has said to them, you know, how can you be engaged in a in a in work that you're saying you're going to eradicate poverty when Jesus is very clear about this—that that poverty, you know, can't be ended. And so, um, you know, I, I really think that just like the passage, slaves obey your masters, was such an important. Um, Uh, biblical passage that had to really be reinterpreted and and defeated um, in the abolitionist movement, that I think a similar thing has to happen, again, not just with um, the problem with you always, but with biblical interpretations, with theological assertions that that make poverty okay, that say that God doesn't condemn uh, poverty, that that say that this is as good as it gets, um, and that and have a whole theological and moral framework to to justify that and, and to kind of build an edifice around that. When in in that passage itself, and in the thousands of passages across the Bible, not to mention other sacred texts, other con, you know other moral frameworks, um, uh, that really the theme is um, that. Uh, Well, we we will only have poverty with us as long as we have structures that um, are actually disobedient to that which God has asked and and, um, and suggested for societies to be organized. And that until we organize society around the needs of the poor, which means organizing it around the needs of everybody, then um, we will actually always have poverty. But... um, and I really believe that this is um, like a key passage, um, and uh, and again, in a host of other kind of an arc of biblical passages, yeah. starting in Genesis and going through Revelation. Right, if we're talking about the Christian Bible, um, that 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 put out, you know, uh, you know. Different methods and models of ending poverty um, that that foreground uh, poor and impacted people in the developing of movements um, that critique charity uh, for justice um, and critique the abdication of governmental and societal societal responsibility for instead saying you know individual churches or individual people should should uh, alleviate these issues um, and and then puts it on that that. You know what what God's will is, and what our faith traditions teach is that we can actually, indeed, um, and it's and it's what we're commanded to do, with what we're obligated to do, and it's what we should be dedicating our lives to doing. And so, um, you know, I I I I I love talking about the Bible, and I love talking about the biblical and theological foundations for for doing justice work because they are great, and they are deep, and they are many. And there's any passage that you 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 know you can you can see this idea that poor people are organizing you can see the fact that that structures are what create injustice and not individuals um, and you can see that that it, it doesn't have to be this way and and um, and so I you know I would love more more conversation about this because I think in our in our social justice movements today we actually sometimes really run away um, we've really kind of let others. Um, have the last word around yeah. what are the kind of interpretations and ideas and ethical ideas, biblical ideas, theological ideas.
1: No, and that, they're wrong. <laughs> say so. I appreciate the clearing call and, and the specificity uh, that in. want um, to um, hit a, a couple of basic points and give a preview for what we're about to do. Um, there is um A question here about uh, Are there resources available to assist in starting these conversations within faith communities, particularly non Christian ones, um, to to hit the Christian communities and then hit the non Christian ones? Uh, And I think there may be resources across faith traditions on the Kairos. Uh, Center website for rights, religions, and social justice. Uh, there's a plethora of resources that you might be able to, to access there. Uh, Interfaith Worker Justice has a variety of resources uh, to start these sorts of conversations. Uh, and for sure they hit Christian, uh, Jewish, and Islamic traditions. I think they may have expanded beyond Abrahamic traditions, although I'm not necessarily certain of that. Um, the book that I mentioned on love and rage, um, lamentably, the, the title, um, the author of that that, that, that great uh, book escapes me, but um, you can definitely um, track down that particular resource. Um, and uh, I think Thich Nhat Hanh uh, has uh, a number of really great resources on peace and activism connecting together also from the, the, the Buddhist stream. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, when, when one thinks of the work of, um, thank you, Travis, uh, uh, extending a virtual hug uh, to you for, for, for putting that in there. Um, and Valerie uh, Coors' um, Manifesto on Revolutionary Love. I've I've been trying to think of that title, I think is another great place to begin. So we're gonna split now into uh, small groups. Uh, We want to make sure we have an opportunity for you all to hear one another's voices, Uh, to compare notes uh, with one another. Uh, So often uh, when we lean deep into the wisdom of the crowd, uh, be it a virtual crowd or an in-person crowd, uh, we walk away further enlightened and further enriched than we would be if we just stayed uh, in in our own heads. Uh, So we have, I believe, nine facilitators, um, and we're going to spend the next um, 15 to to 20 minutes and breakout conversation. I appreciate y'all sharing uh, uh, the title of Reverend uh, Liz's great book. I'm going to do the shameless plug on your behalf. Uh, Reverend Liz, always with us. What Jesus really said about the poor, I think it's incredibly important for Christians. Methodologically, I think it's important for folks who may not necessarily be Christian, but who come from other traditions, who may even be wondering how to do great interpretive work uh, with constitutions and other sorts of texts, the moves that RevenList makes, I think are incredibly uh, powerful and worth giving uh, uh, deep attention to. Uh, So we'll spend the next 20 minutes in a small group conversation, and then we'll come back uh, together at nine to have uh, a closing word. Before we split in small groups, uh, I hope that you all will, will stay. Uh, the, the capstone of the conversation are the, the these micro exchanges that we can have with each other. I uh, certainly want to give a, a deep thank you to Fran, to Maxine, to Abe, uh, and to Michael for all of the great work um, that has made uh, this initial part of the, the, the conversation possible. Certainly, delightfully
0: This has been an episode of Part of the Heartland's World, a podcast produced by the Religious Socialism Working Group of the Democratic Socialists of America. This episode was produced by Jeremy McMahon with intro music by Party Dark. You can follow Religious Socialism on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and visit our website at religioussocialism.org. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting us on Patreon.